You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for the battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, Then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers, and take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. 
And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and Yahweh be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David, with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day Yahweh will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, 
and that all this assembly may know that Yahweh saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is Yahweh's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, and took his sword, and drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet. This is my show for episode 735. As you can tell, we're going to talk about David and Goliath, and we're going to talk more about this situation in Israel. Today is Monday, October 16th, 2023. I just read for you 1 Samuel chapter 17. And before we get into the business of today's situation, the current situation in Israel and around much of the world besides Israel, because this doesn't just pertain to the Palestinians and Hamas and Hezbollah and Israel as pertains to allies on both sides of the equation. Before we get into that, let's appreciate the story of David and Goliath and note this is a gathering for battle and there's no battle just yet, but then there is. So it would seem there's some skirmishing that's going on here and there. Maybe they're probing each other's defenses, these Philistines and the Israelites. They're sending little scouting parties and checking out, okay, what's going on over here? And are they trying to do something over here? And then as they scout each other out, as they kind of try to size each other up, they break out in little fights. But there hasn't been a full engagement of both armies and... In the meantime, verse 4 says, There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, who
whose height was six cubits and a span. And he's described in relation to not just his height, which is great, and I'll explain how great six cubits and a span would actually be within a certain range. He's also described in regards to his helmet, his coat of mail, his weapons. His spear shaft is like a weaver's beam. His spear's head weighs 600 shekels of iron. His standing between these two armies, he's an impressive specimen. He's an intimidating guy. He's a terrifying opponent, potentially, for anybody who would answer his challenge. And he's calling out the Israelites. He's taunting them for days. He says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So Saul is head and shoulders taller than everyone else in Israel. Saul should be the one who goes out to fight against Goliath. That's part of the reason why peoples want kings in the first place. And at this time in history, that was one of the big ways you knew somebody could be a king or should be a king is their prowess in battle. Were they capable of fighting? Were they intimidating enough to maybe deter aggression on the part of enemies or to strike terror into the heart of an enemy to where before you even fight, they're demoralized? What's interesting, reading David Grossman's On Killing several years ago, and it being a very hard read, very difficult, very unpleasant, Grossman goes into this topic of not just psychologically, what are the barriers to taking life? What breaks down when somebody tries to take your life or tries to take a human life around you? How traumatizing that is for most people, not all. There's a certain relatively small segment that is sociopathic and they feel nothing. They do not care. It does not register. They're very cold about it. But for most people, what is terrifying and disturbing about that will lead to avoidance. Most people would rather die themselves than take someone else's life and even to be killed. They would rather be killed than be confronted with this indefinite spectacle of someone wanting to kill them. Goliath taunting Israel is having an effect. It's having the desired effect, even without the fight, without the single combat element having taken place yet. All Israel and Saul are dismayed. And that is to say that they are demoralized, which is the idea. Demoralize them before the battle joins, before both armies are engaged. Demoralize them, terrify them, so that when they fight, they fight not as men who can win. They fight as men who are headed towards death. They fight as men who are going through the motions until the first opportunity to break and run. That's the reason for the spectacle. That's the reason for the taunting. And this is a typical thing, and it's a common thing if you think about it, Trash talk in action flicks, where the antagonist and the protagonist, the hero and the villain, will give their monologues back and forth before the fight commences or before the dust settles and it's all over. They'll 
make a case for why the other side should just give up now. You can't stop me. You're not going to win. Here's what I'm going to do after I destroy you, after I eliminate your friends, after I mop up here. What's the reason? What's the reason for that but to get the other side to be distracted from the task at hand, which is to fight? If you're there for a fight, well, you should probably focus up, focus on the fighting part. But then there's a lot here. There's a lot in what follows, starting in verse 12, where David enters the equation. David, the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons in the days of Saul. That man, Jesse, was already old and advanced in years. His three oldest sons followed Saul into the battle, and here comes David. David goes back and forth between taking care of his father's sheep, making sure that they're fed in Bethlehem, and going to Saul, to attend to Saul. As you'll see later on at the end of the chapter, Saul has this guy working for him, but then there's all these intermediaries who are making the arrangements. Saul doesn't even know David's name, apparently. Hasn't taken the time, hasn't put in the effort to know David's name. He will know his name hereafter, but we're introduced to David again, even though David has already been introduced in the previous chapter, because this is going to put David in a different light. You're going to see him differently. Everybody's going to see him differently after this. Hindsight being 2020, you know what to expect, generally speaking, but then there was a time before David had fought against Goliath and won. And here you can see how transformational, what a makeover it is, so to speak, of the understanding of David in the eyes of many. He was underestimated. He was counted out. He shouldn't have been. They didn't understand his quality, his gravitas. They didn't understand his worth from a character standpoint, but they will. And yet, in the meantime, it says here, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took a stand morning and evening, which is to say that for 40 days, Goliath has been coming out between the two armies, the Philistines on the one hand, the Israelites on the other hand, taunting and demoralizing Israel. And for 40 days, all Israel has been stewing in their fear and intimidation and Saul, more specifically, as king, for 40 days has been hiding in his tent, not confronting this champion of Gath. But then Jesse sends David with food, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain, 10 loaves, carry them quickly to the camp, to your brothers, take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand, which is very political, very shrewd of Jesse. He understands that he's doing his sons a favor to send a gift for the commander over the thousand that they're a part of. And so David does exactly that. David takes the food to the valley of Ella. It says in verse 19 that there was fighting with the Philistines. Does this mean that there were skirmishes? I think so. That's probable. That, that would be typical. Little skirmishes here and there breaking out, but just not a full engagement of both armies yet. But it says, he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry, and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, 
here we see all the men of Israel, verse 24, when they saw the man, fled and were much afraid. And that was the idea. That was the intention on the part of Goliath and the Philistines to make them fearful so that they would flee. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Now, a pause there. Samuel Rutherford, 17th century Scots, Presbyterian churchman, writing Lex Rex, 1644. He points out in the chapter that I just read last night before bed, Samuel Rutherford points out that the whole kingdom and all the people and all the possessions don't belong to the king. Otherwise, how can the king give something in the way of freedom to a certain man, and yet that man would still be under the king's authority? But then the king, if permitted by the people, if they consent, the king can take away from one and give to another, and that typically happens. But then it must be a good thing that the king would give to a servant of his in the kingdom freedom for his father's house. What does that mean? You're free. Okay, were we not free before? Is that not the normal course of things anymore when Israel has a king, that everyone is free? Is that more the exception than the rule? What a prize. We'll be free. We were free. I guess we'll be free again. How sweet will that be? But great riches. Go to the man who kills Goliath. Also, the daughter of Saul goes to the man who kills Goliath. So if you're not motivated by the money and you're not motivated by your father's house being free, well, maybe you'll be motivated by a woman, not just any woman, a woman whose hand being given to you in marriage secures you and your family for future generations in a powerful alliance with the king. Ooh, is that motivating? Well, David is curious. He's intrigued. Verse 26, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And that's really what it's about for David. He's interested. I mean, don't get the text wrong. David's interested in the material benefits and the reward. Why wouldn't he be? He's not going to turn it down. He is a man. But he says, that this Philistine has some relation to the reproach that Israel is suffering from right now, which is to say shame, which is to say we should be embarrassed right now that this is just dragging on and on and on. And oh, by the way, it's not just that the Philistine is taunting Israel. It's not just that he's taunting the army of Israel. No, no, no. Insofar as he does that, he is defying the armies of the living God. So this is about God's honor. But David's oldest brother is angry with David. What an odd reaction. Unless you've had brothers or unless you've known brothers, you may not understand this. But Eliab being angry, my being an older brother, my having seven sons with an eighth due here in the next two weeks and some change, I understand this. I do. By God's grace, we're about to welcome, about to meet face-to-face our eighth son, which is to say this eighth will 
be in the birth order where David is. And so my oldest son being Josiah, 16 years old, Josiah being 16 years older than Nathaniel, I'm imagining an oldest brother who is, oh, I don't know, 16 to 20 years older than his youngest brother, the eighth, being angry and saying, why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. So he's not buying it. Eliab is like, I know you. I know you. You are neglecting your duty. Go home. Do your job. Right? This isn't your place. This is our place. We're here. Get out of here. Go home. Who's watching the sheep? Get. So there's an embarrassment. There's also potentially, possibly, some jealousy that here they've been stewing in their own fear for 40 days, all of them alike. And David, don't ask such annoying questions because we've just kind of resigned ourselves. We're waiting on everybody to do something. And so therefore everybody's waiting on somebody else to do something. And therefore nobody is doing anything. And here you come and you're asking questions. Are you trying to work yourself up into offering to fight? No, 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 no. Go home. Go home. We're not doing that. David's response is classic kid brother material. What have I done now? What? What? Was it not but a word? (laughs) What? (laughs) But then he turns away, right? And that's also classic kid brother material. He turned away from him toward another. I'm not going to do what you told me to do. You're not the boss of me. I'm going to go right back to what I was doing. (laughs) So he does. He talks to somebody else. He's trying to get more information. He's trying to check the math here. And the people answered him again as before. So he's confirming indeed what the reward is. Hey, what's the Powerball up to? Really? Are you sure? Hey, how about you? Same answer? Okay. All right. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. He sent for him. So that is to say, Saul has given instructions, apparently. If somebody expresses interest in taking Goliath on. Saul wants to know about it. And so David is sent for. And as we know from the previous chapter, unless this is out of chronological order, as we know, David already has some familiarity with Saul because he's the one who's skilled at playing an instrument. And he's the one who, when this evil spirit, this harmful spirit comes on Saul and is bothering him, tormenting him, David will play and give some relief. And yet, They're making introductions once again, all over again. David says to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. Saul says, you are not able. So note the double-mindedness here. A reward is offered for anybody who would, and the word has been put out, hey, if anybody expresses some interest in fighting, I want to see them. But then what's the first thing that Saul says to a man who is willing to go and fight. You can't. You can't do that. You're but a youth. He has been a man of war from his youth. David is undeterred, which is great, actually. Some might say he's being headstrong, he's being proud, he's being full of himself. Ah, classic, right? Classic young man, brimming with confidence. But no, who's the confidence in? Take note. Verse 34, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, which is an interesting choice of words, used to keep sheep. Don't you still keep sheep for your dad? 
Hmm. Okay. When there came a lion or a bear, it took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. That's what this is really about. This isn't about David, and it's not about Saul, and it's not about David's older brothers. It's not about David's father, Jesse. No, no. Goliath has defied the armies of the living God, which is to say he's defied God by extension. Verse 37, Yahweh who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. What does Saul say to that? Go, and Yahweh be with you. What do you say to that? How do you object? How do you object when that actually is the perfect response? That's the perfect attitude. Blameless. You couldn't ask for a better attitude, a better mindset. One, interested in God's blessing and knowing that if God gives the blessing, that's what counts. But for another thing, thinking in terms of what is the effect on this army and our people, both and, not either or, both and at the same time. And Saul says, go, and Yahweh be with you. But then Saul does a cunning thing, perhaps because he's not quite given up on trying to stop David. And maybe this is to say he has no plan, but his vanity, Saul's pride, Saul's vanity is getting in the way. Just like he told David, you can't. He's not given up on trying to prove to David that he can't. Saul clothed David with his armor, verse 38. He put a helmet of bronze on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested this armor, this sword. David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took up his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So let's just appreciate that the kings own armor and sword. And remember, here recently we've found that nobody except for Saul and Jonathan has a sword. And the reasonable question that has to already be on the minds of many Israelites is when Saul has one of only two swords in the whole army, why is Saul not going? Why is Saul offering this reward? Goliath is so tall, but then Saul is the tallest one of us. He should be the one going and fighting against this Philistine. Why is he offering a reward? Why is he not fighting? 40 days? It's a lot of time to stew on a question of the fitness for duty your king has. Undoubtedly, they are wondering. Maybe they focus on how terrible Goliath is, and that gives them the answer, and they say, well, okay, you know, to be fair, I wouldn't want to go fight Goliath either. But then what does that reinforce? That reinforces the wrong attitude, the wrong thinking, always round, cowardice, selfishness, a desire for self-preservation when what is needed instead is a desire to do one's duty and to be faithful. David is not going to give up just because Saul's armor is not a good fit for him. He puts it off. He says, I can't go in this. Picks his staff back up, grabs five smooth stones, which is to say, he didn't just grab one. He wasn't so overconfident. He grabbed five. Some point out that Goliath had brothers. 
and that could have been a factor, that David grabbed five smooth stones because after removing Goliath, he might have Goliath's brothers come out against him. That's speculative, obviously. But it says, verse 41, something that's not speculative, the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth. So there's contempt. There is reviling. And Goliath has been practicing his taunts and his put-downs and his insults for 40 days. So he's really fresh, or he's really spent on the trash talk. What does Goliath say to David? Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods, the gods of the Philistines. Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Brimming with confidence, this Goliath, and full of contempt, absolute loathing and disregard for David. But then again, this is a song and dance that has played out for thousands of years of human history before a fight, before a battle. You see it all the time as they're trying to size each other up. They'll trash talk as a way of actually taking the fight out of the other person before the fight actually happens. What does David say? He doesn't say, well, here goes. (laughs) No, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, Yahweh will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that Yahweh saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is Yahweh's, and he will give you into our hand. Now appreciate this, right? Appreciate when the sword and the spear only belong to Saul and Saul's son, Jonathan. Nobody else has a sword or a spear. They weren't allowed to have even blacksmiths to make swords and spears in Israel because the Philistine oppression had been so long-standing, so pervasive, so complete. To say in front of everybody, Yahweh saves not with sword and spear, and this whole assembly, referring to the assembly of Israel, needs to know that. That's quite the statement. The battle is Yahweh's, and he will give you into our hand. So it's back to us. It's not just David. David's not just thinking of himself. He's not thinking just about rewards. It's okay to think about the reward, but he's not just thinking about that fact. He's not even thinking first and foremost about that. The earth may know that there is a God in Israel. All this assembly may know that Yahweh saves not with sword and spear. The battle is Yahweh's. He will give you into our hand. Of course, what happens is the stone is sent. It doesn't seem as though it actually is what kills Goliath, but it stuns him. It knocks him down. Maybe it knocks him unconscious, but he's still alive. It says here in verse 49, the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So he's not doing so hot, but he's not dead yet. How do we know? David struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its 
sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. So if he wasn't dead before, once he's had his head removed, I'm pretty sure he's dead now, right? If there was any doubt, yeah, that's it. It's done. It's over. This isn't going to be one of those films where David turns his back and there's all this cheering, all this murmuring on the part of the enemy. And David's like, yeah, yeah. And then you see blurry behind him, Goliath getting back up. Now they fight again. No, none of that. Make sure he's dead. (laughs) Make sure he's dead. If he's down, but he's not completely out yet, finish him. So this is a major upset. The Philistines see that their champion is dead. They weren't expecting that. They flee. They cut and run. The men of Israel and Judah pursue them, overtake them, cut them down on the way, plunder their camp. Then at the last, Saul says to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. The king says, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner takes him, brings him back in front of Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul says to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answers, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Because now that this is done, it's time to get on with the business of offering the reward. David's going to get praise. He's going to get credit for having delivered the Philistines into the hand of the army of Israel, the armies of the living God. His fame is going to be very great. And there won't be any more of this. Who's watching the sheep? David? No. Now David's going to have new problems. He's going to have new issues to deal with. And by God's grace, David is going to be in due time, before you know it, king over Israel, and Saul will be removed. But in the meantime, between now and then, you're going to see Saul increasingly jealous, increasingly resentful, insecure. He already knows the kingdom is going to be taken away from him. Watch what happens in the next few chapters because it's very instructive. But that's enough commentary for right now on the story of David and Goliath. Let's get into some current events and We'll breeze right through several items of note as to what's going on in Israel. And we'll talk about, actually, the need for homegrown leaders. And an article by Aaron Wren, The Need for Homegrown Urban Leaders, an opinion piece by Aaron Wren from August of this year. Don't miss that. It's a great time to talk about it. While David and Goliath are fresh on our minds. But first, over at the Daily Wire. October 9th, Daily Wire News reports US, UK, France, Germany, Italy released joint statement on Israel. The US and the four most powerful countries in Europe have released a joint statement as of last Monday, so a week ago today. The statement was released from President Joe Biden, President Macron of France, Chancellor Schultz of Germany. Prime Minister Maloney of Italy, Prime Minister Sunak of the United Kingdom. And I quote, we make clear that the terrorist actions of Hamas have no justification, no legitimacy, and must be universally condemned. The statement said, quote, there is never any justification for terrorism. In recent days, 
The world has watched in horror as Hamas terrorists massacred families in their homes, slaughtered over 200 young people enjoying a music festival, and kidnapped elderly women, children, and entire families who are now being held as hostages. End quote. As this article attests, as of the time of publication, 900-plus Israelis were murdered, more than 2,600 were injured, dozens were kidnapped by the terrorists and taken back into Gaza, and that needs to be dealt with. It has to be reckoned with that the people who actually carried out these atrocities in Israel were not the only people involved. There were people back in Gaza and throughout the Middle East and throughout the world supporting this, planning this, funding this, arming and equipping this, encouraging this, and there are still people today who are defending this and saying that this is all the fault of Israel. Israel brought this on themselves because Israel has been occupying Arab land, Muslim land, for these last several decades since the formation of the modern state of Israel. There are still people, even today, on one end of the political spectrum, on one end of the geopolitical spectrum, who are saying Israel is the aggressor, Israel is at fault, Hamas is the victim, or they're the freedom fighters, or they're the oppressed, because a Marxist lens, a Marxist narrative is being superimposed on the story of Israel and Palestine, but then that's not new. It's not a new thing, and it's not going away anytime soon. If you think that this is just a passing fancy, it's a temporary madness, you don't know how long this has been a feature of politics in America, in Western Europe, in the Middle East, in the world. It's good that these powerful countries, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Italy, have said absolutely Israel has a right to self-defense. But then the headline this morning is that China is saying Israel has gone beyond self-defense. Now, wait a second. Wait just a second. Is it only self-defense when the terrorists come into your country and you kill, I think the last number I saw was 1,500. You kill 1,500 of them as they are running amok still, trying to kill as many Israelis as possible, men, women, children, the elderly, the very young, infants, torturing them, dismembering them, burning them alive, beheading them. Is it only self-defense as you're eliminating the terrorists who are actually in Israel, who've made it through the fences, who've made it into the communities? Is it only self-defense when you're getting them back out again? Or is it self-defense to go back to their home base, to go back to where they're going to come from the next time around? Is that also self-defense? I seem to remember that back in 2001, when the 9-11 terror attacks knocked down the World Trade Center and put a giant hole in the side of the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., I seem to remember when that all happened, it wasn't the limit of self-defense that the United States government, the United States military, U.S. law enforcement took out those terrorists. Oh, by the way, it was a suicide mission. They knew it was a suicide mission. We all knew it was a suicide mission. 
what did we do? We said, wherever these guys came from, wherever their organization is, we now have to go and root out their organization. We're going to go and make war on Al-Qaeda. But then it wasn't just Al-Qaeda, which is Arabic for the base. It was the Taliban, which had given a home to, a base of operations within the country to Al-Qaeda. The Taliban wouldn't hand them over and wouldn't let us just come in and deal with Al-Qaeda directly. And so our war expanded to include the Taliban. And then there's a lot of controversy about this, but I favor the claim still that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Saddam Hussein was a bad, bad man. He was a bad guy. He had done horrible things to his own people. He was a bad actor in the region. I don't think that it was a mistake for us to go in. I think it was a mistake for us to think that we could nation build. And then it was a mistake for Obama to be elected and go around the Muslim world and apologize for American power, American self-determination, American confidence. I think it was a problem how we got out of Iraq and how we got out of Afghanistan very much. We lost the peace. We didn't lose the war. And Obama had ridiculous rules of engagement and ridiculous, ridiculous opposition to military leaders sending in troops, weapons, munitions, launching missions to actually take out the terrorists, to take out the enemy. Whatever you may think about Saddam Hussein and whether he had weapons of mass destruction, which he would have been willing to give to terrorists to use against America and our allies, he was an enemy. He related to us as an enemy. We related right back as if he was an enemy and we took him out. And it was good for us to take him out. He had it coming. It was good for us to go into Afghanistan and remove the Taliban from a position of power. It was good for us to go in and make war on Al-Qaeda. But it was not that our self-defense as a country, as the United States of America, was limited to when the terrorists pull out the box cutters and begin taking over an airplane, that's when you have the right to self-defense. And once you've eliminated them, once you've neutralized them, well then, hey, that's far enough. Let's not escalate. This isn't a recent development in Israel. And oh, by the way, what prompted it, a lot of experts are saying, was that Israel was in talks with Saudi Arabia to normalize relations and Iran, deathly afraid that Saudi Arabia may get nuclear weapons before Iran gets nuclear weapons, Iran stirred up Hamas and Hezbollah to go after Israel, to get those normalization talks to break down before they would result in an agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia. For China to say today, for other countries to say today, Israel has gone beyond self-defense is laughable because it's China emboldening Iran. It's Iran emboldening Hamas and Hezbollah. Yes, this does have every potential of being World War III in a jiffy. It does. But that doesn't mean that Israel needs to back off because who's being the aggressor here? Who is attacking whom? If Israel goes into Gaza and they root out Hamas entirely, if Hezbollah comes down from the north, and then Israel has to deal with them as well. If we are moving two aircraft carriers into position, and those are not deterrent, but they actually have to be put into action to fly sorties, to knock out artillery positions, rocket positions, to knock out invading 
ground forces from neighboring Arab countries. It very well could be that we have World War III, but then that's not a recent development either. These things are a long time coming. These countries making a joint statement that Israel has a right to defend itself, and there's no excuse, there's no justification for what Hamas did. They hope will be a deterrence, but then as with the story of David and Goliath, a long time can go by where the champion of one army stands between the two and taunts and mocks the other. And at a certain point, if somebody says, that's it, that's enough, let's fight already, there will be people like David's brother who say, what are you doing here? Go home. Who's watching the sheep anyways? Get out of here. Mind your own business. There are absolutely people in the United States and in Western Europe who are saying that kind of a thing right now. And there are people on the other side who are our enemies, who want us to be divided amongst ourselves, against ourselves. They want us to hold Israel back. I don't think we should hold Israel back. Israel needs to go in and they need to eliminate Hamas and we need to have their back. It's as simple as that. Skipping on over to theblaze.com though. October 10th. So again, I realize it's been several days, but late is better than never. (laughs) It doesn't all need to be commented on in the moment. Sometimes it's better to give things a few days, especially when tensions are running as high as they are right now. Blaze TV staff, is Russia also behind Hamas's brutal invasion? I'll play for you a little bit of audio, not a lot, a little bit of a conversation that Glenn Beck had with the author Jack Carr behind the Terminalist show on Amazon, which was a book before it was a show. Here's the two of them sitting down, having a conversation about all this. Cut one, take a listen. But really the Israel that Hamas, Hezbollah, Iran was dealing with last week, that's a different Israel than they're dealing with today, most certainly. And we talked about being being duped into something. It was really a a form of quasi-tolerance, meaning that Israel has tolerated a certain level of violence from Hamas. And they thought that they could contain Hamas, they could live with that certain level of violence. Uh, They thought Hamas was tolerable, containable in Gaza. Uh, Not today. That has all changed over the weekend. The levels of violence perpetrated on Israel is something that they have never seen before at this, uh, at these numbers, grandmothers, children, women killed, raped, tortured, Uh, and a friend in Israel who's with the Special Operations Forces over there has been texting me throughout the weekend and over the last couple days here and has said that what we're seeing in these videos that are coming out are not even the half of it. It is so much worse than what we're seeing, and and they're in the thick of it right now. So, you know, you, you look at some of these things and you see that 900 Israelis died. Um, uh, some of them were Americans. They died uh, in horrific ways. It was an execution squad, really, uh, and a kidnapping squad. As we, we watch these things, um, we have to understand the, the population is only 9 million people over in Israel. Mm-hmm. So that's like... Uh, casualties of 30,000 people being tortured and raped and killed here in America. This is a huge impact. However, the the way Israel usually deals with it, I think what people don't understand is that it has changed. 
normally they will go and then as soon as they respond then the world starts to say oh you've got to stop the killing this is horrible i don't think israel's going to stop this time i don't think so either and for the past decade they've had this uh the, the same sort of policies towards gaza have remained in effect it's been semi working but uh I think that they're going to look at those policies, realize those policies were a failure. All they did was set up Hamas to do what they did over the weekend. And, of course, there's a few wild cards in there as well, Hezbollah up in the north. Uh, There's something between 100,000 and 150,000 rockets pointed right out there, right at Israel. So if that was acceptable last week, I don't think that's going to be acceptable for much longer. Okay, so we'll just stop right there. You hear enough there. In what I played for you to appreciate that Hezbollah is also in the mix and the Israel that might have said, okay, you know, we're going to be sensitive to the international community, our allies in Europe, our allies in the United States, when they tell us to back off and not really go after the terrorists who carry out these random acts of violence against our people, you know, that ship has sailed and it hasn't worked. Okay. New plan. Almost like hiding out in your tents for 40 days while Goliath stands between the two armies and taunts and taunts and taunts. Once the battle is joined, that's what it is. And if you tell Israel, all right, nope, 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 that's all you get. That's all you, all you do is you kill Goliath and then you go home. Well, wait a second. What if word gets out? Just like word is getting out that Hamas carried out this daring, bold, audacious attack against Israel because Iran's got Hamas's back. And the hope on the part of Iran is that exactly what has happened would happen, that Saudi Arabia would stop normalization talks with Israel and start talking with Iran instead, that the United States would rein Israel in, that Hezbollah would feel emboldened, that Syria might feel emboldened, that others in the Muslim world say, in Afghanistan, now that a whole lot of American weapons have been left behind for the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and ISIS-K to pick up, a lot of those weapons would make their way, a lot of those fighters would make their way to fight against Israel. Exactly what Hamas was calculating, what they were hoping for, has happened if the response is not to make Hamas rue the day, to make those Arab nations and those Muslims who hate Israel and hate the Jews and hate the West, and hate the United States, think twice, then actually to pull back is going to broaden the conflict, is going to embolden enemies, and they will carry out still more of these attacks. When the mission of Hamas, their mission statement, is the total destruction of the state of Israel, when crowds chant across the Muslim world, death to America, death to Israel, you have to understand that if they're waiting, if they're not attacking right now, it's because they don't think it would actually move the ball forward down the field. It's that they don't think it would be worth it. We have to keep them believing that it's not worth it. And if we stop them from killing anybody and it's just themselves who blow up, it's just themselves who end up being taken off the chessboard. If we stop them from being able to harm innocents and accomplish their goals, then they'll buy their time. But then 
if they are saying, okay, now's the time. Now let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. You don't stop defending your people. You don't stop defending your country just because you pushed out the fighters who had made their way into the country initially with that first push or that last push. You don't stop defending your country and going after an enemy like this just because they are not firing rockets right this second. Imagine how would it be if in your own town, on your own street, some bad dudes, some criminal drug dealing, human trafficking, gangster thugs got in a shootout with the police and they needed to reload. Would you say that law enforcement also needs to hold their fire until the bad guys have reloaded? Once they start shooting again, then it's okay. Then it's fair for law enforcement to shoot back and to neutralize those criminals. No, of course not. Of course not. But then that's exactly the kind of head game that the people on the radical left who love oppressed peoples, so they call them, because they're wanting to implement global communism. That's exactly the head game that they want you to be delayed by and neutralized by. Now, ultimately, if you're neutralized for too long and you're in Israel's position, then you just don't have a country anymore. Your people are killed. And there's no respect for whether these are combatants or not. The fact that they're Jews living in what had been for 14 centuries, according to the narrative, Muslim-occupied territory, that's all that is needed to establish their guilt. If you are holding your fire until they reload, until they start up the killing again, you're doing it wrong. You're being foolish. And where is it written that that's the rule of warfare, that you wait until the other side starts killing your people again in real time right now? They have to be actively killing your own people right now for you to go after them and to take them out. In the story of David and Goliath, when David kills Goliath and the Philistines flee, shocked that their champion has died, what does Israel do? Does Israel just say, okay, let's let them go. Let's let them go. Let them go home. Good job, guys. No, they chase after them. They chase after them and any of them that they can, they cut down. Why? Because otherwise, they're just going to come back again tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. Their intentions haven't changed. In the long run, they're still an enemy. Now, somebody will say of a Christian persuasion, we need to turn the other cheek. We need to forgive as we've been forgiven. But that's not correct. When you're talking about an enemy army that wants to destroy innocent people, our government's job The government of Israel's job is not to turn the other cheek of innocent men, women, and children, non-combatants, the elderly and infants. Women don't need to have their government saying, well, who are we to judge? No, 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 no. A government like that will not be a government much longer. That government, which would say, we're going to let evil people from outside of our country do evil things to you all, will not be in a position of governing authority for long, nor should they be. Paul writes in Romans 13, the governing authority is a minister of God to reward those who do what is good, to punish those who do what is evil. He does not bear the sword for nothing. He bears the sword to punish and to restrain evil with a deterrence that comes with the ability to use deadly force. If the governing authority, the governing official is not willing 
or not capable of wielding deadly force to protect their own people, their innocent people from those who would do evil, then they're not doing their job. They're not doing what God has put them in that position, in that role to do. Now, that said, let's turn our attention to a poll over at the Jerusalem Post. Israel News reported on October 12th, updated October 13th by the Jerusalem Post staff. Israelis blame government for Hamas massacre, say Netanyahu must resign, poll. An overwhelming majority of 86% of respondents, including 79% of coalition supporters, said the surprise attack from Gaza is a failure of the country's leadership. Now, what is this? Not calls for him to resign right now, by the way. But, they say, after the wars concluded, Netanyahu, in particular, should step down. 56%, not a huge majority, say Netanyahu must resign at the end of the war with 28% of coalition voters agreeing with this view. 52% of respondents also expect Defense Minister Yov Galant to resign. Now, this, I think, illustrates the point that I'm making, that a government that does not protect its people or is perceived to have not protected its people is failing at one of its primary jobs, if not its primary job. Think back to Romans 13. The governing authority does not bear the sword for nothing. The governing authority is a minister of God. The governing authority's job is to reward those who do what is good, to punish those who do what is evil. How can Paul say that when we know that nobody does what is good? Everybody only does evil continually. But wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. Don't read it like that. There are good things that people have a right to do. For instance, people have a right to do what God created them to do. People have a right to do what God has commanded them to do. When God blesses Adam and Eve, for instance, and then later he blesses Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, them and their wives after the flood, what does he say? He says the same thing in both cases, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. When God sends the prophet Jeremiah to tell the exiles who are going into captivity in Babylon, the Babylonian captivity, take wives, have sons and daughters, build houses, plant gardens, plant vineyards, have sons and daughters, raise those sons and daughters to the age where you can give them away in marriage. Give your daughters away in marriage. Take wives for your sons so that they also can have sons and daughters. Increase in the land and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. What that tells us in those cases and in so many others between, so many others, what that tells us is that when you're doing those things, you're doing what is good. If God tells you to do a thing, then it's a good thing for you to do it. If God tells you, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, and then you find a wife. Well, you've found a good thing. It's good for you to take a wife. If God says that children are a heritage from Yahweh, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth, then you know that a young man taking a wife, having sons and daughters with her, is a good thing. Being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it, it's a good thing. Governments, the governing authority that bears the sword for something, should reward or bless, or honor, or protect those who do that good thing. So, also, 
when terrorists come in, when evildoers come in to tear that all down. Oh, you built a house? We're going to blow it up. You planted a garden? We're going to set it on fire. You planted a vineyard? We're going to hack it to pieces. You took a wife? We're going to kidnap your wife and haul her back to Gaza. Oh, you had children? We're going to murder your children. Nothing gets more evil than that. And a government's job is to punish those evildoers, to put them to death, really. If they're murderers, if they're rapists, they deserve death. It's a tricky thing when they're hiding behind Palestinian Arab civilians. That's a very difficult thing. But to Israel's credit, they have been extraordinarily restrained. To the West's credit, the West has insisted on an incredible amount of restraint. If you think Israel's bad, you've been propagandized. But then even so, even with all that restraint, even being on the side of what is right to protect their people, to declare war on Hamas because Hamas has come against Israeli men, women, and children. If there's been negligence, passivity on the part of the Israeli government, it's understandable that Israelis would say, we want you to resign after this is over. Not right now, but once this is over, we want you to resign and step down. It makes sense because that's the job of government. That's what government is supposed to do. They're supposed to reward those who do what is good. They're supposed to punish those who do what is evil. Now, back to the Daily Wire. Daniel Chaitin published a piece. October 8th, U.S. Senator took shelter in Israel when Hamas attacked. Here we have in view Democrat Senator from New Jersey, Cory Booker, Spartacus, as his friends call him, a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Booker had traveled to the country in part to deliver a speech at an event marking the deals brokered by the Trump administration to normalize relations between Israel and Arab nations. Quote, on Friday, October 6, Senator Booker arrived in Israel for several days of planned meetings and site visits ahead of the start of an Arab Accords-focused N7 summit on regional economic integration in Tel Aviv, at which he was scheduled to speak on Tuesday said Booker's spokesperson, Maya Krishna Rogers. Quote, Senator Booker and accompanying staff were in Jerusalem when Hamas launched their attacks against Israel on Saturday and sheltered in place for their safety. We are grateful that Senator Booker and our colleagues were able to safely depart Israel earlier today. Just yesterday, Daniel Chaitin, the same author over at Daily Wire, the same publication, published another piece. Schumer-led Senate delegation shelters from Hamas rockets in Tel Aviv. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, and other members of a congressional delegation sheltered for safety as Hamas attacked Israel on Sunday, which is to say that these attacks are still ongoing. In a post to X, Schumer shared a photo of himself, Senator Mitt Romney, and others hunkering down in a cramped space. While in Tel Aviv today, our delegation was rushed to a shelter to wait out rockets sent by Hamas. It shows you what Israelis have to go through. We must provide Israel with the support required to defend itself, end quote, Schumer said. Now, what was I telling you here a little bit ago about China and some other countries saying, yeah, you know what, Israel has gone beyond just self-defense. That implies that Hamas has stopped attacking Israel. That implies that peace is possible if Israel will just lay down and 
stop picking on the Palestinians. That's a lie. That is a lie. It's not true. Just like a people who is willing to murder children, women, the elderly, non-combatants, to torture them, to rape them, to hold them hostage, to use them as human shields, just like a people is willing to do that when they're committed to the destruction of Israel, they're also very much capable of lying and getting their allies to lie for them and claiming that for that people that they're oppressing, that they are targeting to defend itself is all the proof that you need that they're the bad guys. Our own U.S. senators sheltering in place. Why? Because these rockets that Hamas is firing into Israel, for one, will make no distinction between whether these are Israeli citizens or these are U.S. senators. The Hamas rockets are being fired indiscriminately to sow the utmost chaos and terror among Israelis. And for that matter, too, if it turned out that one of these rockets did hit and kill several U.S. senators, Hamas, Iran, they would celebrate. But I'll add a little hook here. And it was Glenn Beck who mentioned this in passing in some reporting that I was listening to, some commentary of his that I was listening to during an interview last week. There is a Russian philosopher, if you can call him that. His nickname is Putin's Brain. His name is Alexander Dugin. Dugin founded the Bolshevik Nationalist Party. He is for fascism and for communism and for mysticism and for paganism and for anything and everything that is anti-Western, anything and everything that might help to tear down individualism, liberty, reason, the West. Alexander Dugin loves death and has worked very hard for decades now to convince the leadership in Russia and the allies and satellite entities aligned with Russia, that they all together should embrace death and suffering and promote it in the world. Because that's what's good. What's good is death and suffering in the cause of making a nation great, specifically Russia. Now, if other nations don't want Russia to come in and take them over, like in the case of Ukraine, or if other nations don't particularly want to be erased from the map, like Israel, well, so what? It doesn't have to make sense. In fact, some of this confusion, some of this double speak helps to promote the chaos and the confusion that will distract those who otherwise would defend themselves, otherwise would coalesce around defending the innocent. But you have to understand that for all of the desensitization that we may have from watching too many movies and too many TV shows, for all of the apathy and indifference and macabre fascination with the other side, there are actually some very evil, very villainous people in the world who you might not believe really do exist and they really are willing to do the most heinous, awful, evil things to us, to our loved ones, to our neighbors, to our country, to our allies, countries. If we cannot make decisions together, if we can't agree that it's a good thing for our economy to be strong, to be robust, to be resilient, to be profitable for those who engage in it, 
If we can't agree on that, then we can't strengthen our allies. We can't defend our own people against predators and terrorists like those who have been unleashed on Israel and seek daily for Israel's destruction and for the murder of all the Jewish people in Israel. We have to be able to make decisions together. We have to be willing to pursue strength for our country or else we're not going to be a help to anybody, not even ourselves. And just like a government which does not protect its people is not going to be a government for long and will be replaced, will be abolished, a government which actively interferes with, systematically opposes robust economic activity and enjoying the fruits of their labors for the people being governed will not be a government over that people for long. A bipartisan coalition going to Tel Aviv to show solidarity and then having to hide in a bomb shelter. Well, it's quite the optic. And Hamas does not care whether you and I lean Republican, if we lean Democrat, if we're independents. All they care about is that we're Americans. That's all that matters to them. We need leadership in our country, in the West, that cares that we are Americans, that cares about our allies who will have our back as we have their back, being able to defend themselves. But we need to have leadership that is not systematically opposed to, fundamentally opposed to human flourishing, or else the terrorists win. The evil philosophers like Alexander Dugan win. The abusers of mankind will sense the weakness, and they do right now, and they're exploiting it. We have to stop being weak and feckless and indecisive and so hostile to each other that while we're distracted, they come in and take us all out. For our last story, though, to that end, to the end of having a government of the people, by the people, for the people of these United States, which will protect our interests, protect our allies, promote economic activity, which supports young people getting married, having children, raising sons and daughters, building houses, living in them, etc., etc. Aaron Wren wrote an opinion piece over at governing.com August 10th of this year titled The Need for Homegrown Urban Leaders. He says, and I quote, cities today face a leadership challenge. Their post-pandemic burdens include a demographic shift that favors suburbs and exurbs, downtowns dealing with the prevalence of remote work and a shortage of workers commuting to the office, and elevated issues of crime and homelessness. Cities actually faced much bleaker times in the 1970s and 1980s, but leaders like the recently deceased Richard Ravitch in New York City stepped up to do the difficult work of shepherding their cities back to health. In a recent New York Times article, Nicole Galines talked about what made leaders like Ravitch effective. Local rootedness, independent wealth embedded in the community itself, pragmatism and a willingness to chart an independent course that sometimes resulted in conflict with other elites. Changes in cities over the course of the last 30 to 40 years have greatly undermined local leadership cultures like the one which produced Ravitch, a lifetime New Yorker. Among the biggest culprits was deregulation that led to corporate consolidation, particularly in banking, utilities, and retailing. 
Back in 1980, the banks in most cities were locally owned and were limited by law to their home markets. Their CEOs were extremely powerful, both in their companies and communities, and their personal professional incentives were aligned with those of their locality. The only way to grow their banks or electric utilities was to grow the community where they were based. Today, many CEOs of once local companies are branch managers of global firms. Their job is to sit on local boards and dabble in community relations, but they don't really call the shots anymore. Companies that have remained locally based now typically have national or global reach, so the local market is just one element in a vast portfolio. In a more nationalized and globalized business culture, those who aspire to high corporate positions must take great care to echo standardized positions, particularly around ESG, environmental, social, and governance goals, and DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. They are constrained by career considerations from taking any truly independent positions or actions. Civic leadership has been democratized and diversified in recent decades. It's no longer a small group of connected white male elites, along with a black leader or two, getting together in a room and deciding what to do. More inclusive leadership has brought many benefits. Neighborhoods aren't getting demolished for freeways today, for example, but is greatly complicated reaching consensus. With some exceptions like Dan Gilbert in Detroit or George Kaiser in Tulsa, few local business leaders today are able to step forward and assert leadership publicly or even behind the scenes. Civic leadership has been bureaucratized. Now let's just pause there. That's not the end of the article, but that's enough reading of the article for the moment. What is Aaron Wren saying? The move towards globalization has undercut the ability of even the wealthiest guy in a town to work and act and operate and engage independently. Why? Because he's got to keep the people above him in the corporate hierarchy, the global corporate hierarchy of his company, happy. If word gets back to his executive vice president for North America, for instance, he might lose his job. He might be removed. He might be forced into early retirement. He might get demoted or transferred and then have to retire or resign and go work for somebody else. Whereas before, if he was the top guy in his company, he was free. He was free to speak and to do as seemed best to him. Now, not to say Aaron Wren doesn't have a point. He does. He does have a point. I get his point. But let's look back at Saul and David again. Look at Saul and his advantages. His father was a wealthy man. Saul was more handsome than anybody else. He was head and shoulders taller than everybody else in Israel. Saul had every bit of independence that you might expect. The kind of local homegrown leader Aaron Wren is describing us needing again to have. And he hid in his tent for 40 days. All it takes really is a bigger enemy than your king And if your king is not a man of principle, not a man of courage, if he's got a checkered past, if he's afraid of the people, maybe your king hides in his tent just like everybody else is hiding in theirs. When the enemy champion taunts day after day after day, your army, your king, your people, your God. If we need more local leaders, and we do, that's true, that's correct, we need more Davids. And I understand there's a lot of people out there who want to say, you're not David and your problems are not Goliath. 
but God is God. And I say this again and again, not for no reason. Even if you're not David, God is still God. God is the God who was pleased by David's attitude and blessed it. And not just when it was David's attitude, also when it was the attitude of others. So what was David's attitude? Was David's attitude that he was the one that all of his brothers deferred to? No, quite the opposite. Was David's attitude that he was father's favorite? No, he was the one that didn't get the invite when Samuel came through. All seven of his older brothers were there. Not David. Where's David? Nah, he's out taking care of sheep. We told him to stay out of the way. Was David middle-aged, well-established in the community? Did everybody know his name? No. As a matter of fact, unless the chronology is out of order between 1 Samuel 17 and 16, he had been working for Saul, playing music for him when the harmful spirit would come on him after the spirit of God departed from Saul because the kingdom was being taken away from Saul. David had been working for Saul, going back and forth between his father's house, taking care of the sheep, and working for King Saul as a musician. And Saul didn't even know his name. He didn't even bother to ask whose son he was. Who is this kid? Who is this youth? Until after Goliath was killed. David had none of the advantages. What did David have? He had a trust that faithfulness in a little bit, in little things, was enough to go on to engage bigger problems, to tackle larger challenges. He who is faithful with a little will be entrusted with more, Jesus says. For that matter, more to the point, David had trust in God, that God had delivered those smaller challenges into David's hand, the lion, the bear. God would deliver this uncircumcised Philistine into his hand. And God did. So while I agree with Aaron Wren's argument, more or less, we need homegrown urban leaders, they're not going to come in the form of wealthy bankers. They're not going to come in the form of some CEO of a startup in your town who doesn't have to have the backing of anybody. All it takes these days, even if you are the CEO of an independent well-to-do company, all it takes, even if you're the wealthiest man in the world, see also Elon Musk, is regulators saying, we're going to look for issues to drag you into court about. We're going to look for things that we can file lawsuits against you for. We're going to run all kinds of speeches and interviews in the media implying that you are guilty of malfeasance and your board should remove you. Investors should not invest in your company. Customers should not buy your product. What's needed is more men with the attitude and the mindset of David, whose hope is in Yahweh, who build up confidence that they're doing what's right, they're saying what's true, with the things that are already on their plate. Be faithful with the things that are already on your plate. Like, for instance, if you're told to keep out of the way and take care of dad's sheep, you start there. You do the best job you possibly can taking care of dad's sheep. And when somebody asks you years from now why you think you would be a good fit for this job of slaying the giant from Gath or whatever the equivalent is, you're able to say, God delivered the lion and the bear into my hand. God will also deliver this Philistine into my hand. You mean it. You know it. You believe it. 
because you've been trusting God to get to this point, and you don't stop trusting God when you get to this point because somebody's like, hey, put on my armor. If you're going to go out, put on my armor. I feel like that's what, unfortunately, Aaron Wren is getting at in saying we need homegrown urban leaders like the bankers of decades ago, like the CEOs of local and regional corporations from decades and years ago. Put on this armor. No, don't put on that armor. Pick up what you've been using and you're already familiar with and you've already been faithful with and run at the enemy. Run at that problem with that. Because it's not about you being David and it's not about the problem being Goliath. It's about God being God. His character being immutable, unchanging. The character of his promises, not just having not changed to this point, but we'll see. No, the character of his promises is unchangeable. It cannot change because his character cannot change and won't. There's no reason for it to. Count on it. Bet your bottom dollar on it. We have more people like that locally, and we do need more people like that locally because that's the principle that you're faithful with a little. You'll be entrusted with more. Start locally. Don't start by gunning for the top job. Pick up the slack. Pick up the job nobody else wants to do and do it well. Do it better than anybody has done it for years or in living memory. You do that. You do that. And we will be a more prosperous country. We will be a safer country. Our allies will trust us more. Our enemies will fear us more. And hopefully they won't even start something. Don't start something, won't be nothing, as they used to say. In conclusion, I don't know what's going to happen moving forward with Israel, with Hamas, with Russia and China and Iran and North Korea. I don't know what's going to happen. This could be World War III that we're just about to go into. And if so, God is still God. That's why you need to remember that God is still God, because whatever is going to happen next with people, decent people, indecent people, virtuous, courageous people you're afraid to get your hopes up about, and villainous, awful, horrible, evil people that you don't even want to believe could be that evil. People are people. God is God. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.